Welcome to To Love, Honor, and Vacuum, the podcast where we like to talk about how to make marriage into a passionate adventure and not just a to-do list. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum blog, and I am so glad that you've joined me. Before we get into our main segment today, I just want to highlight some amazing testimonials that came in and reviews of the blog that came in recently. I really appreciate these. And if you ever want to review the podcast, I would so appreciate it. Just go to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen and leave a five-star rating and give it a review so that other people can see it. Um, But (laughs) I thought this one was great. Someone said, I just love that you're the not naive Christian perspective on sex. And thank you. I'm glad I'm not naive too. And someone else said that Sheila is a great communicator of the Bible. And, you know, I do like keeping the Bible front and center. I I don't tend to proof text like a lot of other people do. I just tend to look at big themes and just ask us to use our brains a bit because God gave us our brains. And so I'm much more the common sense approach, and I hope that that works. And then another person said, I appreciate what you're doing, talking about sex in a healthy, constructive, plain speaking way. I think this is so misunderstood in today's society, and I value what you're doing. So thank you, and I value all of you for listening. And again, I do appreciate those reviews. I've been writing a lot over the last year about some of the sexual abuse scandals that have been happening in the church. And I've had a number of people send me in links to other crises that are going on and other stories and with their own questions of things that have happened in their own lives. And one woman suggested that I do a podcast on what grooming looks like. Because grooming seems to be the common thread in all of these stories. And if we can understand what grooming is and what it looks like, then perhaps we could stop some of these cases of clergy sexual abuse and just general sexual abuse as well, both in our own lives and in the lives of those we care about. So I want to talk about grooming in this podcast. And that may be a term that you're not familiar with, but I want to get us really familiar with it and just point out some of the aspects of grooming and how that can be used to break down your defenses. So let's do a couple of definitions before we start. First of all, grooming is a process in which a perpetrator gains a person's trust, breaks down their defenses or often breaks down their boundaries, violates their boundaries without them even realizing it so that they can begin to manipulate them for sexual purposes. So it's a very deliberate thing of a slowly breaking down of all of your personal boundaries. They gain your trust. They get in there so that they can then use you in the way that they want to use you. So that's definition one. Definition two, which I think is really important, is clergy sex abuse. I believe it's 13 states now um, in the United States outlaw any form of sexual contact between a clergy member and congregants. Because when you are in a power relationship, as I described in the video that I made a while ago about the Andy Savage case, like when you are in power over someone else, the reason that they may seem to be consenting to this quote unquote relationship is because of that power. They would never have been interested in you otherwise. You were able to break down their boundaries and their defenses because of the power that you hold. And so you were able to pressure them into a relationship in a way that you would not have been able to had you not had that power. In Canada, it's a little bit more nebulous. Uh, The criminal code does declare that consent is not possible when there is a power relationship between two people. And so it could be argued that clergy sex abuse is also 
against the law in Canada, but it is a little bit nebulous. But more and more people are recognizing that, yeah, this is not okay. Uh, and so if you have a youth pastor who is violating some boundaries with, with young people, or if you have a pastor who is violating boundaries with anyone in the congregation, this is a serious thing and it needs to stop. And so I want to help us recognize what that looks like. First of all, <laughs> when a perpetrator is grooming someone, and I'm going to talk about this specifically in the church context, because that's what that's what I write about and that's what I've been getting questions about. But this can happen also in schools. It can happen in social groups. It can even happen in families. But let's talk about some of these aspects of grooming, no matter what the situation is. Okay, so the perpetrator is trying to make people think that something which isn't normal is totally normal. Because your average person doesn't just jump into a sexual encounter with their pastor. If your pastor walked up to you and suggested that you have sex, I am sure that you would say no, most of us would. And yet there are so many cases where youth pastors have taken advantage of the youth in their group and have sexually abused them. There was the case uh, that's in the news right now, pastor of Berean Bible Church in Minnesota, I believe, Wes Feltner, uh, 17 years ago, he was carrying on simultaneous quote unquote relationships. Okay, it's not actually a relationship when there is a power imbalance. That's not a relationship, that's abuse. But nevertheless, these have been called relationships in the news and in his uh, church. He had his girlfriend to whom he is now married, and then these two other young women who didn't know about each other. Uh, and he really pressured his way into their lives and did these things without anyone realizing it. Now, had he gone up to those two young women on day one and said, hey, I'm interested in getting sexual with you, they would have said no. <laughs> and there was only one for whom it went as far as intercourse. The other one, it did not, but it still did cross lines. But nevertheless, he managed to get them both to that point because of a process called grooming. And so I've talked about this on the blog and in videos in relation to Andy Savage and Wes Feltner. I'm going to be mentioning some other cases as we go along that have been high profile in the news, which are good examples of some of these aspects. But the reason I want to do this is so that you can recognize if you're ever pulled into this. Okay, you can recognize that what this pastor is doing is not okay, or this elder or this deacon or this worship pastor or this youth pastor, whatever, like that's not how normal people behave. That is not okay. And so that you can also be aware of what's going on to people in the margins, because this is really important. It's often the most vulnerable who get pulled into these abusive situations. And when we know how to recognize it, then it's easier for us to keep our eye out for those who need us watching over them. So first point, Grooming tends to start with the bystanders, not with the victim. The perpetrator, the first thing they need to do is they need to groom everybody around the victim to not believe it if anyone speaks up against them. So they need to earn the trust of everyone around them and they need everybody around them to think I am an upstanding citizen. I would never do anything like that. So that if there's ever any accusation, the people are going to back you. They're not going to back the victim. So that's the first thing people do is they groom the bystanders. How do they do that? Number one, you make yourself indispensable. Okay. You get into a church and you do all the stuff that nobody likes to do. You make yourself completely indispensable. You serve a ton 
You provide a listening ear to people. Often you'll even share your own concerns, especially about child safety or about women's safety. You'll go to the pastor and you'll say, you know, I'm a little bit worried that we don't have good child safety policies in place. We really need that. What's the pastor now going to think about you? They're going to think, oh, wow, this guy really cares about children. He really cares that they're safe. Uh, You listen to the leaders because leaders are stressed in any organization, in any family, leaders are always stressed. And so your perpetrator is going to be the person who's going to be there saying, you know, you look really tired. You take so much on yourself. I so respect you for how much you are doing. And they're going to provide that listening ear. They're going to be the ones that are volunteering to lead the studies. You know, if there's Bible studies, they're going to be right there front and center. They want to show to people that they are truly Christian. They're going to be comfortable praying out loud. (laughs) They're going to know how to put on a show. Now, some abusers, of course, are not going to be this charismatic. They're not going to be leading the Bible studies. They're kind of creepy to begin with, or maybe they're really introverted, but they just seem like they're nice guys just hanging out. Uh, So maybe not everybody's leading the Bible studies, but it is really common. And lots of abusers are extremely charismatic. So I'm just saying that just because someone can pray out loud and just because someone can lead a Bible study does not mean that they cannot be an abuser. They're going to be the kind of person that everybody wants to be like, and they want their kids to grow up and be like that person because he's such a model servant. You know, he's always caring for others. He's the first one there to help if someone gets a flat tire, like he's just indispensable. A good example of this is Larry Nasser, the guy who was convicted of abusing hundreds of girls in gymnastics and in the University of Michigan and whom Rachel Den Hollander spoke up against. Larry Nasser surrounded himself with people who thought he was indispensable. So much so that when girls came forward and said he's doing something really seriously weird to me during his medical exams, they all said he was crazy, that they that these kids were crazy, that they were um, just looking for attention. The only non-gymnast victim, a close family friend, Kyle Stevens, she was also the first to deliver uh, the victim impact statement at his trial. When she was six years old, he started abusing her. And when she told her parents, her parents did not believe her because he had so ingratiated himself into their family. And Kyle Stevens was the one who gave that perfect line in her victim impact statement. I want this, I want this tattooed everywhere, or put on pillows or something, but little girls don't stay little forever. They grow into strong women that return to destroy your world. I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> so way to go, Kyle, for taking back your life. Now, as these perpetrators are grooming the people around them, they also have additional tactics so that if anyone ever gets too close, they can deflect. So for instance, if somebody starts to suspect them of something, if there starts to be rumblings that something is going on, what they will often do is confess to something lesser and they'll confess wholeheartedly and they will they will show genuine repentance it looks like they will pretend to be completely honest and they will be moved to tears and they will show that that they are completely cut up by what they have done so if a woman accuses a pastor for instance of trying to groom her or trying to get her into an affair you know he'll confess that Uh, he just doesn't have good boundaries and he's been so stressed at work lately and he hasn't been spending enough time with the Lord and uh, this has really diminished his judgment and maybe he should even take a leave of absence. I mean, the church shouldn't be saddled with someone like him. And then the elders will say, oh no, like they'll be so impressed with his repentance that they'll keep him on. So very common. Um, Another good example, John Christ, the Christian comedian that was caught last week in a huge scandal. Um, There's been rumblings about him for years and years and years. 
years, and finally it all came to a head in Charisma magazine, and Netflix has canceled his special, and Waterbrook has postponed his book. But what John Chris did was he confessed multiple times to being a sex addict. Uh, So whenever the rumblings got too loud, he would confess that he was a sex addict and that he was getting treatment. The only problem is that a sex addict does not abuse women. A sex addict goes and hires a prostitute. He does not abuse women. Just because you're a sex addict does not mean that you're a serial abuser. But he would confess to this lesser thing to let himself get off the hook so that he could keep doing what he's doing. So that's another common tactic. So perpetrators, number one, they groom those around them to gain their trust and, and intimacy. Number two, they identify a victim. In some cases... Victims tend to be just who is available, who walks into their lair, kind of like Shelob, you know, that spider in the Lord of the Rings that's sitting there at the top of that big um, cliff or stairs, whatever that Frodo and Sam had to climb. And then there's this this spider laying in wait. Well, um, that's what some abusers do. So they just abuse those who happen to come into their lair. Larry Nasser, again, perfect example of this. He would abuse the girls who came in for, to him for medical treatment. And he would do it right in front of their parents often. Uh, Wes Feltner, again, who's in the news, it appears that he did this as well because he tended to target uh, the girls who came to him for counseling. So they're opportunistic abusers. In other cases, perpetrators will try to find someone who won't speak up who won't be believed. So you'll find the marginalized who are having issues at home. Andy Savage chose Jules Woodson in their youth group uh, because she was someone whose parents' marriage was rocky. Uh, She was someone who was really looking for some attention and some validation because she wasn't necessarily getting it at home right then. Uh, Jerry Sandusky, the University of Pennsylvania, Um, you know, the big football scandal. He targeted boys who are from single mom homes who didn't have parents looking after them quite as closely. So he looked for people who wouldn't be believed, who would be called histrionic. They're making it up. You know, people who are not on his same uh, social level. Uh, In a case in Canada, Jervin Weeks was a pastor in Regina. I actually spoke at his church. So this this one kind of freaks me out because this is the first, even though I've known many of these people after the fact, I've never known one before the fact, but he was a charismatic minister and it turns out that he was grooming and and sexually harassing a lot of women in his congregation. But it was a young single woman who was alone in the city that he started with. It was a woman whose marriage was breaking down that had come to see him that was joining the church. Again, you choose the marginalized. Number three, you start doing things and then you see if other people notice. So with kids, Andy Savage, youth pastor here with Jules Woodson, he would tickle the girls in the youth group and see if anyone said anything. A very common tactic for those who are sexually abusing people in their youth group is they start getting very physical. So they'll tickle, they'll hug a lot, all of that kind of thing. And then people just get used to seeing you do that. And so they stop noticing when you do it. It's just like, oh, he's just very physical or, oh, he's just very affectionate. When it comes to children, your perpetrators will hug all the kids after church. They'll always be picking them up and spinning them in a circle. So you get used to thinking, oh, there he is horsing around with the kids again. When you see him touch a child, it doesn't really register to you because that's what he's always doing. (laughs) They'll do it with all of the kids. They won't necessarily just single one out, but they'll often touch. They're very touchy. 
And then you zero in on the one particular kid or the one particular woman or the one particular teenager. And the way you do that is you form a bond. So number four, the fourth step in grooming is they'll form a bond. They'll something that is special between them. An adult with a child may give them a special toy that they can't tell anyone about, but they're able to play with when they're with the adult. With adults, when it's a pastor with another adult um, or a youth pastor with a youth, they'll tell you that you're special. You know, you're insightful. No one else understands the way that you do. And so they will elevate that person through compliments and through praise to make them feel like I am in an exclusive group. And remember, when it's the pastor doing this, you know, everybody, when you're in a church, you want the pastor to like you. Like, what's the, what, what happens after the church service? When the church service is over, what does everybody immediately do? You go to talk to the pastor, right? You have something special you want to tell the pastor. You want to shake the pastor's hand. This is what people do after church. So the pastor is the person that you want to have acknowledge you. You want your pastor to remember your name, to know stuff about you, to say things to you. Um, in a youth group, you know, all of these kids were trying to get validation from their peers. Well, when the youth pastor singles you out from among all of your peers, that tells your peers, okay, I'm special. I'm on a rung higher than you are. And that's important for teenagers. And so when youth pastors do this, it makes them feel more important. Number five, they will force an intimacy. Okay, so this is when they start to break down your boundaries. They'll tell you a secret struggle to create a closer bond than you're used to with them. And it'll feel weird, but it will also feel a little bit heady. Like, oh, here's someone important and they're telling me this stuff. They don't tell my friends this. Or they'll tell you something big that's happening behind the scenes in the church that most people aren't privy to. You know, like like some some power struggles that are going on or some people that aren't happy with their leadership. And a youth pastor might say, you know, there's been so many, pa- so many parents complaining about me and I don't know what's going to happen with my job and I'm scared. And then, the, you know, the teenager will feel like, wow, I know this and no one else does. Or they might even tell you a secret, a secret struggle that they're having with doubt or even with sin. But this forces this intimacy where all of a sudden, once someone opens up about something they don't normally tell people, this isn't something that is generally known. Now I'm in this special circle. I am more vulnerable. I am more intimate with the pastor than most people are. And so already you're starting to get closer and closer enmeshed with the pastor. And then number six, they often will take it into a different context. So maybe you usually hung out, you know, before and after youth group, but maybe he's going to start texting you or he's going to suggest that, hey, let's go, let's go somewhere after youth group. Andy Savage would drive Jules Woodson home. The abuse happened when he volunteered to take her home. Texting relationships will start abuse. So people will start texting you um, and they'll get increasingly frequent texts and increasingly more intimate texts. And then number seven, they'll start breaking boundaries with those texts. Because once you break one boundary, hey, you might break another. So they'll start texting you late at night. John Christ would call the girls that he was targeting at three in the morning and he would get mad if they're not there to answer. So that's a way of them kind of having control over your life. And once you start to give someone the permission to text you late at night so they're the last person that communicate with at night or to text you first thing in the morning so they're the first person that you communicate with in the morning, it's almost like you've let them in and now you feel like you have to keep going because, well, if I've already broken that boundary, then I mean, they're already there. (laughs) 
And texting matters. I don't think that we treat texting seriously enough. There was a case a few years ago I read on the internet. I, I know she's taken her story down now, but it, it did the rounds uh, quite a bit where it, she was a 17-year-old girl and a pastor in his 40s had been texting her for months. Uh, again, last thing at night, early in the morning, he would comment on the things that she wore to church. as She went to Europe and he would text her and ask if she was missing him. And finally, she showed the text to her parents. They showed them to the church and the church didn't fire the guy. The church said that it hadn't, it it wasn't sexual. It wasn't a romantic relationship because he hadn't really gotten super sexual in the text. He had just been violating her boundaries. But when a pastor is texting a 17 year old girl late at night and early in the morning, that is not okay. And that is the first Well, not really the first. Here I've got it as the seventh, but it's way down the list of things that people do to groom people for some sort of sexual abuse. So we need to take texting seriously. It is not appropriate for a pastor or a youth pastor to be texting or emailing girls or women uh, at weird times of day or about personal things. It just isn't appropriate. And it's not appropriate for youth pastors to be doing it to boys either. There's a case in uh, at Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago where youth pastor Paxton Singer was texting a whole bunch of boys and asking for pictures of them in their underwear. You know, not cool. Now that one did obviously get sexual, but I mean... This is just something which should not be happening. And it shouldn't happen by email either. Ravi Zacharias, you know, he got in trouble for emailing a woman uh, and having this relationship with her that he should never have had that did get in far too personal and and sexual in nature um, that should never have happened and would not have happened if there had been proper boundaries. But he broke those boundaries. And so you should not have a pastor who is ever emailing or texting with someone like that in a personal way. I'm going to read you a part of the CBC story about Pastor Jervin Weeks, who was stripped of his license to minister in Alliance churches in North America after this story. This story was first shared on a podcast and then it hit national news um, in, in Canada. But it's talking about a young woman named Krista Hunt. And I'll start reading. In January of 2014, Hunt felt that she had hit rock bottom. She was searching for help for herself, her kids, and her marriage. A friend invited her to attend Rosewood Park Church. Hunt sought counseling from Reverend Weeks. Soon after, he started texting her. Hunt said it made her feel so special. She said she found a sense of belonging that she'd been looking for. Again, very typical. This is what grooming looks like. So she goes for counseling and now he's taking it up to the next level. He's violating a boundary and he's starting to text her. She valued Weeks' guidance and put him on a pedestal. Okay, that's where the power comes in and that's why this stuff isn't okay. Screen grabs of text exchanges shared with CBC News reveal that Weeks began to compliment Hunt and to introduce more sexualized content. By 2016, Hunt said she started to feel weird, but she was plagued by self-doubt. She said she didn't trust her gut. She convinced herself to ignore red flags because he was a pastor. Now, I want to comment on this part too. She said she felt weird and she was plagued by self-doubt and she didn't trust her gut. Part of the reason for that is because he had already broken so many boundaries that now she kind of felt like he was already in and she couldn't push him back out. And if she had already let him do all of these things in her mind, then what's going on is, did I invite this? Am I reading too much into this? I mean, I'm the one who agreed to this. 
that's not the way it works. But that's how women often feel is because he's violated this boundary and I didn't say anything, then I invited it. And so maybe this isn't so wrong. Like maybe this is okay. Maybe he's not really doing anything bad. So she felt torn. On one hand, she relied on him. He helped her find a new place to live after her marriage broke down. Okay, that's part of grooming everybody around you too. You make yourself indispensable. You show how much you care. But on the other hand, she had started to stay off social media at night when she knew he might be online in order to avoid contact. The sexual nature of Weeks's text messages to Hunt began to escalate. And she tried to defuse the situation, texting him, innocent flirting is harmless, and if it wasn't harmless, I would be crushed. And then it went on from there, and the article starts describing some of the really graphic texts that he began to send her. And so here's a situation where he was just violating boundary after boundary, and she started to doubt herself, because since she had allowed those boundaries to be broken, and I don't mean that she was responsible when I say that, I mean this is how she is perceiving it. Well, I allowed this to happen, so I must have asked for it. You know, I must have tasked consented to it. I must think that this is okay. And so you start doubting your own red flags. So this is what grooming looks like. They break you down until you start doubting yourself. That's very, very typical. Okay, two more bits, two more, two more steps of grooming here. Um, the next one is that you break other boundaries, often with substance abuse. So before things get sexual, often we'll have alcohol in the picture, or maybe they'll introduce porn. That's really common with children, is that abusers will introduce pornography to young teenagers or to kids to, again, you've broken down all of these boundaries that now the kid can't tell anybody else, and so they don't know what to do with that. But they've now created this intimacy because you share something that they know is wrong that is that people don't normally do or talk about. And so now I have this intimacy that I didn't ask for, but it's there. And that's why, by the way, it's really important to read the book, Good Pictures, Bad Pictures with your kids. There's a version for really young children and there's a version for older kids. Such a great book series and I highly recommend it. But with adults, often the, the boundary that they'll break is with substance abuse. You know, so so they'll introduce alcohol and you start feeling like, okay, if this pastor is drinking, then wow, I must be really cool. You know, like this must be a really cool thing. And you start feeling like you're part of the in crowd so that they feel more bonded to you. So they feel like they can't speak up because now I've done something wrong with you. And so I can't speak up to anybody else. Let me read you one of the stories of a woman who came forward to accuse John Christ she ran a podcast and she contacted John Christ uh, to interview him for the podcast. He's a really, really popular Christian comedian um, all over YouTube, do, does major sold out shows. And so he was like her Christian idol. And and he agreed to be interviewed. And so she was just thrilled. She and her boyfriend were at this hotel in Vegas where they were going to interview him. So she says, I opened up about my mental health, what it's like being in the industry, addiction struggles, and how he inspired me to create this podcast and do interviews, Kate says. It was at this point that John confided in both my boyfriend and me that he was a sex addict. All right. Now remember what I said about, you know, you're forcing an intimacy, you're confessing something so that now people feel really close to you. (laughs) Both my boyfriend and I felt it was cool how open he was about his past. And I continued to feel grateful and excited. I was getting to meet my comedy idol. Moreover, I was so excited to have a mentor I had so much in common with. So she thought nothing of it when Chris asked for her number before he left, or when he later added her on Snapchat and immediately began messaging her, or when he invited her out for the evening, just the two of them. 
Kate says she eagerly accepted, told her boyfriend about the meeting, and then left to meet Chris. So here's a woman who has no intention of actually getting into a romantic or sexual relationship with this guy. She's got a boyfriend, but she just feels so honored that this really talented, really famous guy is taking an interest in her and wants to mentor her. And so he's broken all of these boundaries and he's he's creating this false intimacy and she doesn't recognize it right away. When she reached his apartment, he met her outside, suggested they rollerblade, and invited her upstairs to grab a few things for the trip. Upstairs, he gave her a water bottle full of raspberry vodka and poured himself a whiskey in a Snapple bottle. And then it goes on from there. But here's a guy, again, breaking a boundary by introducing alcohol, very common alcohol, drugs, pornography. You know, they'll often do that as a prelude to sex. And then finally, the last bit of grooming will often be them totally falling apart in front of you and saying that they are so hurt, like they're so sinful, they can't defeat this demon in their lives and they really need you and you're the only one who understands. And now you feel like you have a responsibility to them, like you have to minister to them and help bring them along. And that's often when a sexual relationship will start. I mean, it might start at any of those points, but that's often how they keep it going or they get it started in the first place is all of those different steps. Again, to reiterate, they will groom the people around you so the groom, so the people around you don't notice anything weird. They will identify a victim. They will start doing things in public to see if other people notice things that normally people would think were not normal so that other people start to accept them as normal. They'll form a bond with you by sharing something special. They'll force an intimacy by telling you about a secret struggle. They'll take that into a different context, social media, chatting, Snapchat, whatever. They'll break down your boundaries about personal space. They'll break down other boundaries, often with substance abuse or pornography or whatever. And then they will confess their sin and their vulnerability and how much they need you. And that's what grooming looks like. We need to be aware of this. It is not okay for a pastor to be doing these things with a congregant. It's illegal in many states. Um, It's illegal in many countries. And it's just plain wrong, even if it's not illegal. And churches need to stop excusing it and saying, oh, they were only young or, oh, will it never really cross the line into something sexual? No, if a pastor is continually breaking some boundary through this texting late at night, through having alcohol with a counselee in their office, that's not okay. And that's not something which just needs a confession and then a repentance. That is something which needs to, where they need to be fired (laughs) or that you need to start hiring a third party investigator because where there's smoke, there's usually fire. And that is not normal behavior. But because the pastor, the perpetrator, whoever it might be, has groomed everyone around them to think that they are so perfect, then when someone comes forward with something which seems so odd, we often try to rationalize it and say, well, maybe it's not as bad as everyone thinks it is, or maybe it's not as bad as it looks. If it looks bad, it's bad. You know, take a step back and ask yourself, if it were someone else who had done this, other than the pastor that I respect and love so much, would I think it was terrible? And if you would, then don't give your pastor a pass because your pastor should be behaving better, not worse. 
there's been a lot of these stories in the news lately. I've just finished reading um, Rachel Hollander's biography, which I really recommend, What is a Girl Worth? Uh, what a great book. And it goes into detail about how Larry Nasser did groom her and did groom other women, how she didn't see it at first. Her mother didn't see it at first. They started questioning themselves. They questioned their whole reality. Uh, they didn't know if any of this was real. And when they recognized what it truly was, it was devastating. And they had to do something about it, but it took years. Is there more abuse in church than there is elsewhere? Yeah, I think there is. I don't think that's because Christians are inherently more abusive, not at all. I think it's because Christians are inherently more trusting. And I think it's because in church, you get this natural opportunity to be close to children, to be close to youth. If you're a pastor, you're going to have a lot of women telling you their most intimate secrets, and it's not going to be weird for you to be talking to women alone. And so I think that if you are someone who is, wants to abuse others, you will naturally gravitate to a church. And so when we are in church, we need to assume that there are abusers with us, just as Jesus talked about. The weeds grow among the wheat, the, ta- the wheat and the tares. He talked about those that in many parables, but how at the end of times, you're going to find the birds of the air, meaning, meaning Satan and his demons, perching in the trees that grew from that mustard seed of faith. Like that's what the kingdom of God is like. It might be a huge tree, but there's still the birds of the air there. It might be a wonderful field ready for harvest, but there's still some weeds there and you can't separate it till the end. There's evil in our churches doesn't mean our churches are evil, but we need to assume there there is evil in our churches and we need to get a lot smarter at recognizing it. So let's recognize the grooming steps. Let's believe people when they speak up instead of circling the wagons and trying to protect the pastor. And let's make our churches safe places again, because they need to be, they should be. When we don't take this stuff seriously, we push people out, but we also hurt the very people that Jesus cares about. So let's educate ourselves because our churches, our kids, all of us deserve better than this. On a personal note, I am just back from Ottawa. We spent almost all of October in Ottawa where my oldest daughter, Rebecca, lives. Rebecca works on the blog. She's the author of Why I Didn't Rebel and my co-author of our upcoming book with Baker Books, uh, The Great Sex Rescue. And she just had a baby, but she had her baby two weeks late. So we went to Ottawa in case she was early and we ended up staying for several weeks waiting for this wonderful baby to arrive. And then when the baby did arrive, she had some postpartum complications. And so I stayed in Ottawa and I am just home now, but Connor, her husband, who does the editing for the blog, I didn't want to put him through too much this week, so we're not going to do a reader question or anything, um, but it was it was a great time to meet my grandson and to help them out. Uh, I'm very glad to be home, and I'm off to Utah this weekend, where I will be speaking at a conference for the great people who do the Get Your Marriage On app, and I so appreciate this app. They are a wonderful sponsor of the blog, and I want to give them a shout out. I have said over and over again, these guys, when they make apps, they make the apps that I would have made if I had had time to make an app. And so I am so grateful that I can just point you to them instead of having to do all the work myself. Their ultimate intimacy app for sex is incredible. It helps you look at different positions, different techniques. Um, It leads you through some really fun, spicy foreplay stuff while being totally clean. And then their Get Your Marriage On app has short videos that are teaching videos that can help you learn very specific concepts, but then they have action 
steps that you can do to make them real in your marriage. There's a great segment of the app on how to have a marriage meeting, which I completely endorse. And I think it's a wonderful idea. We've walked through that. Joanna talked about it on the blog when she and Josiah did it. So just a wonderful app. If you can't afford marriage counseling, if you just want a little bit of a tune up, if you want to make sure that you don't drift apart, check out the app. You can both get it on your phones. You can sync to each other so that you can make notes to each other. And I really think it's a wonderful app for increasing intimacy, learning love languages, learning different communication techniques, all of those things. So important to work on your marriage. We often think our marriage, when we start out, we love each other and we figure it's always going to be that way. But quite often life just gets in the way and you do drift. And so having a tool like this can help you stay close. I also want to put a big plug in for our survey. Have you done it yet? We are conducting what we really hope and pray will be the largest survey ever done of Christian women's marital and sexual satisfaction. I think there's just too much teaching out in the Christian world that doesn't necessarily help marriages. And so I want to get to the bottom of what hurts marriages and what makes marriages awesome. Uh, But we need you to take the survey. We can't do this ourselves. So we are getting all geared up to write this book, but we need the data. And Joanna, our data nerd, is so excited to start crunching numbers. So give her some numbers to crunch. If you are a woman and if you are married or if you have ever been married, remarried, divorced, whatever, you are more than welcome as well. Come and do our survey. The link is in the description to this podcast. There's always some extras in the podcast post that goes along with the podcast. So please check that out and do our survey. I will be back next week when Keith is going to join me and we are going to talk all about erections, all kinds of reader questions about erections that I've been waiting to get to. And I think I would rather do that segment with a guy who's also a doctor. So we'll be doing that. And I am kind of looking forward to that one. I'm not so sure. I don't think he's looking forward to it, but hey, it's important and it's my weird job. So we're going to do it. Uh, So until then, uh, thank you for listening. Spread the word, rate this podcast, five star, leave a review and please do our survey and we will see you again next week. And as always, you can find me on the blog at tolovehonorandvacuum.com.